Last week, we finished up John 17, the prayer of Jesus. We learned that for those of us who know Christ, God delights in us with the same love that the Father pours out on Jesus. Now this morning we start a sermon series on Amos, and I feel like some of you are going to have whiplash. Last week he said, Father God delights in us because he the same love that he delighted in Jesus. And this week it's going to sound like God is really, really angry with you because of your sin. And some of you are going to email me this week, so I'll spare you the trouble. Which is it? Does he delight in us the same way he delights in Jesus? Or is he really, really angry because of our sin? And the reality is, you have to understand both of these things simultaneously. Or you'll never understand anything, really, about the gospel and anything about God. In other words, we need to bask in in the comfort of John 17, that in Jesus, because we're in Jesus, God delights in us. Yes, we need to hear that. But we also need to hear that God is a holy, righteous God who, who must and will deal with sin decisively and appropriately. They're not two different things. They, 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 they come together in the character of God. And as we look through the book of Amos week by week, I think it's a very wonderful preparation for us here at Stonehill as we prepare in the run-up to Easter. Good Friday, Monday, Thursday. In other words, unless you understand that God takes sin seriously, you'll never understand the beauty and glory of what Christ did for us on Good Friday and at the resurrection. Very much, it's what the Bible gives us, this uh, in some sense, a complex picture of this incredible God that we have. It's, it's much like being a, a, an amateur astronomer. If you've ever been to a star party with amateur astronomers, right, they don't pick out to go in the middle of a large city with lots of light. They always go somewhere where the, they can find the darkest patch of sky they can. And when you come into a star party, you, you, you have to turn off your lights or you have to put these uh, sort of red, uh, you know, uh, sort of things that, 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 that defray the light and keep it low. Uh, they want to uh, limit all of the light. And they hope that the, that the sky will be very, very dark so that they can see the beauty of the celestial bodies that they're studying in their telescopes. And in the same way, Unless you see the darkness of sin and the fact that God takes that sin very seriously, you will never be able to understand the love of God that was poured out for you on that cross and in his resurrection and to see how much this God who takes sin seriously, also what he did to bring you back from your sin, you'll never be able to understand the glory of God's grace. 
And so that's why we're going to look in to the book of Amos. It's interesting, just a couple of words of introduction and then we'll dive in. It's interesting about Amos is he's not a professional prophet. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Amos, by profession, was, was a shepherd. We're also told in Amos, uh, in, later in the book, that he, was a, he, he grew sycamore figs. He's a fig farmer. Amos lived in the southern portion of Israel. Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. The north was Israel, the south was Judah. He lived in Judah, in Tekoa, which was, it seems like he lived in, in Tekoa, just a few miles south of Bethlehem in the southern kingdom. What God tells Amos to do is Amos has to go into the northern kingdom called Israel and share with Israel what God had to say about Israel. I kind of like Amos. He comes from the south to help the people in the north. Draw whatever conclusions you want from that. In Israel, in the northern kingdom, they are led by Jeroboam II. He's actually a good king if you want to measure a king in terms of his political abilities and his economic plan and his military, military victories. Israel, the northern kingdom, is experiencing kind of a rebirth in many ways. Military victories, economic uh, abundance. But spiritually, he's nowhere. And spiritually, the northern kingdom is nowhere. We're told that um, Uzziah is the king of Judah. He's in the south. Again, even Judah is experiencing some kind of of movement in, 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 in good directions in terms of military, political, and economics. But spiritually, things are not well with either the northern or the southern kingdom of Israel, Israel and then Judah. It's interesting that it mentions that he came to give his prophecies two years before the earthquake. Now, we're not exactly sure, uh, you know, what that earthquake was, although we do have historical accounts of a massive earthquake around that time. And so, when... when, when uh, Amos goes to prophesy, and then just a few years later, there's an earthquake. This would have buttressed his words of prophecy to the nation. So Amos goes from the south, Judah, into Israel to begin to offer the words that God had given him. And this morning, as we introduce the book... I want us to see two things that Amos' words, uh, how he, his words and his prophecy, particularly in this first chapter and the first three verses of chapter two, help us understand who God is. And there's two I want to see from the text itself, and then I want to lead us into the Lord's table. The first thing that we learn about God from this opening chapter 
is that because God created the world, he has the right to hold the world accountable, and he will. Because God created the world, he has the right to hold the world accountable, and he will do that. When I want you to turn to Amos 4.13. Three times in the book of Amos, uh, in a series of sort of hymn-like uh, uh, verbiage in the middle of his prophecies, Amos refers to the fact that God created the world. Look at uh, verse 13 of chapter 4. In the middle of this, sort of a hymn-like uh, description, he does it in two other times in the book. He says, for behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth? The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Amos is writing in a context where he clearly understands that God made the world, and because God made the world, he has the right to hold the world accountable, and he will. And this is vitally important for you to understand and believe, and we get an illustration of it in Amos 1. It is so easy when you look at the world, any kind of casual sort of looking at the world scene, you see amazing, incredible amounts of injustice and mayhem in the world. Do you not? It's incredible. Week by week where you see someone has been killed inappropriately by the police, and then you see police being killed inappropriately by the citizenry. You've got a war in, in Europe with Ukraine and Russia and the mayhem that has gone on there. Even in America, which enjoys lots of freedoms, the number of murders per year is, it fills a, a, a small football stadium. You look around the world and all the poverty and all the economic injustice and all the people that are being imprisoned simply be for speaking their minds about religion or politics, imprisoned all over the world. When you see the world, you see this massive amount of injustice. And I think it, it's not, it, it, it kind of forces you to ask a question, where in the world is God in all this? Is he going to do something about this? And in Amos, we see that yes, he can, and he will, and he has the right to do this. What is interesting about the first chapter and into the first three verses of chapter 2 is that Amos goes to the northern kingdom and pronounces judgment on six different groups of people. He pronounced judgments on Damascus, the Aramaeans in verses 3 through 5. He pronounces judgment on Gaza, which, which was where the Philistines lived. He pronounces judgment on Tyre, where the Phoenicians lived. He pronounces judgment on Edom, on Ammon, and on Moab. It's interesting how, how Amos does this. Is he, he prophesies against these nations. All of these nations surround the northern kingdom of Israel. Damascus, the Arameans, are northeast. Gaza, the Philistines, are southwest. Tyre is north. Edom is south. Ammon is east. Moab is southeast. And it's also interesting in the judgments that Amos pours out, the first three nations are clearly uh, disconnected from Israel. They're Israel's neighbors, but they are disconnected. But the next three, Edom, Ammon, and Moab, have some tie through, through marriage or intermarriage has some tie with Israel itself. 
And what I think Amos is giving us a picture here is that the God who made the world is going to hold the world accountable for what it does. It's also interesting, in each of these um, six people groups that Amos pronounces judgment, he uses the phrase, look in verse 3, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus. And then he will go down through, for Gaza, for transgressions, transgressions. That word transgression has a sense of viewing these nations as, as peoples who are rebelling against God, rebelling against God's word. In other words, the way the word sort of means is, is that these people groups have violated a, a treaty with God himself. And of course, some of you would say, well, wait a minute, none of these nations are Israel. They're not Israel or Judah. They weren't in covenant with God. Oh, yes, they were. I don't have time to turn here, but if you look at Genesis uh, 9, um, 5 through 7, you see that God made a covenant with all people, the only people that were left on the earth, no one is family, that talked specifically about how you should treat other human beings who are made in the image of God. And therefore, all human beings are obligated to that covenant. What Amos is sort of helping us see is that God is not simply the God of Israel or the God of the church even. He's the God over all peoples and every single person is accountable to him. And so God can and will hold the world accountable. Such an important reality of God to be believed by us. Because if you lose confidence in that, you look at a world and the mayhem in the world and you wonder, does God even care about any of this? Is God going to deal with any of this? He will. He does. Amos shows us that he is doing just that. That's the first thing we learn about God. There's a second thing we learn about God, and that is this. God cares deeply how people treat other people. It's interesting, in all of these six people groups, Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab, in none of the judgments on those people is he talking about their idolatry. I'm sure they were idolatrous. He's not speaking about their relationship with God even, although I'm sure that wasn't good. What Amos is declaring as at God's direction is that these people groups have treated other people contrary to the way God demanded that we treat one another as people made in the image of God, going back to the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9. Just look at a couple of these. Verse 6, the, the, the judgment on Gaza. For 4, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. He's referring to a situation where, where Gaza took a group of people and, and essentially probably sold them into slavery uh, subjugated them in an unjust way, not treating them according to the fact that they were made in the image of God, and that is why they will go in and be punished. Look in chapter 2, verse 
one, he says, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned alive the bones of the king of Edom. Burned the bones of the king. That, that would have been viewed as a desecrating a, a dead body that should be treated with dignity, and that level of hostility and hatred and, 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 and malice, for that is why God is going to deal with Moab in a decisive way. On and on it goes, over and over it goes. What God is concerned about is how people treat other people. Those are the judgment that these nations are, are, are going to be subjected to God's justice because of the way they have treated other people. Take a moment, turn with me to 1 John 3.10 to see why God takes these kinds of things so seriously. This is the Apostle John writing. This is a very stark passage in the New Testament. 1 John 3.10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Woo. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Practicing righteousness would be with, with how you treat other people and then not loving your brother. In other words, John sets it up is that when we treat each other poorly, when we treat each other inconsistent with who they are as image bearers, God is very concerned about that and he's going to deal with that. One more thing that's interesting about each of these, I encourage you to read this afternoon, get a commentary, kind of take a look at it. He pronounces judgment on all of the six of these, uh, these people groups. Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab. What's interesting is that in the, the punishment that, that Amos shares with the northern kingdom, that their surrounding neighbors are in danger of facing judgment of God because of their mistreatment of other people. Some of the judgments that are meted out take decades to be fulfilled. Some of the judgments, it's not clear that the judgment actually took place. It may have taken centuries before that people group was firmly dealt with according to Amos' prophecy. And what does that remind us? Well, it reminds us of the passage that we read in our worship service. That God is not slow in keeping his promise, right? But he's patient. He's merciful. He doesn't want any to perish. He, he gives time for people to repent. The fact that God doesn't deal justly immediately with every person who is treating another person wrongly is he's giving time and patience and mercy for that person to repent. And I think sometimes we get frustrated with God because he's not seemingly doing anything about it. But we know from Amos, he is going to do something about it. He will do something about it. But it may take time because God, not only is he just, but he's merciful. He's merciful. Kind of to sum up this first chapter, you go back to verse 2. Zamish begins his prophecy against Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. He says, the Lord, the Lord roars from Zion 
and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Amos will do this again later in the book. He pictures God as a roaring lion. A roaring lion who is, sees the injustices, sees the way people are treating other people. And because he made the world and because the world is rightfully under his control, he roars, he sees, he is grieved, and he is planning to make sure that all injustice will be firmly dealt with in his time and his way. Now that's great encouragement in one sense, I think. I think the people in the northern kingdom who heard um, uh, Amos's first, you know, first chapter, three verses in the chapter two, I think the people of the northern kingdom in Israel would have welcomed this. They might not have liked that he had a southern accent from southern Israel, but they would have said, this sounds right, God. You deal with those neighboring countries that mess around with us. You deal with those people. They need to be dealt with. But this is the rub. What is God going to do with us? How many of us have gossiped about another person and hurt their reputation? God cares a lot about that. How many of us have raised our voices inappropriately with our children? How many of us have thought negative thoughts about another person? We've judged them in our minds and it affected the way we related to them. How many of us have gotten into a pretty significant argument with someone and said a lot of things we should never have said? Well, there's a God who cares about this. There's a God who is going to deal with this. There's a God who's deeply uh, grieved by this. We have a God who's a roaring lion who sees this. How often have, have we, maybe God has blessed us with a certain amount of wealth, and yet we have failed to really help those in need around us. These are the kinds of things in the book of Amos that God is deeply concerned with. I think oftentimes we want God to be very just with the people around us, the people who have hurt us. But when it comes to us, we don't really want a God who holds us accountable. We want a God of mercy, do we not? And of course the reality is, this is the picture of this God. God is the creator God who will and does hold the world accountable. God is a God who cares deeply how people are treated. But we also know that there's something else that God did for the injustices that you and I have perpetrated on the people around us. And that is, he came to die for our sins. That roaring lion who who opposes all injustice, that roaring lion who will hold us accountable is also the same God who put on a human body and came to earth and to die for our sins sin, to die for the ways in which we have been unjust, to die for the ways in which we have harmed other people. In a very real sense, the God who is a God of justice entered an unjust world and he himself took our sin upon himself, received the punishment that we deserved, 
and then offers us his righteousness so that we can be forgiven. We can have new life. So that we, we don't have to uh, sort of live in abject fear of what God's going to do because those injustices we have perpetrated on our friends and family and enemies and others have all been dealt with through the death of Jesus Christ. And when we see the darkness and the boldness and the stark, uh, hard-hitting prophecies of Amos, it helps us to see the incredible beauty and glory and love of God poured out in Jesus for us. And that's why it's important for us to celebrate the Lord's table together. I'd like to ask the servers to come forward and have a seat. I'd like to ask the choir to come up as well. Is there going to be leading us in song? Servers can have a seat. I want to invite anyone who has trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to partake with us. We'll hand out the bread, hold on to it. We'll partake of it together. Hold on to the cup, we will partake of that together. When we partake of the bread, uh, I want us to spend time confessing our sin what we're encouraged to do and be reminded that in the death of Christ our sins are forgiven music team will lead us during the cup choir will help prepare us as well please bow Lord Jesus when we see how you take the sins against other people so seriously we know that we are guilty all of us Lord, for those who have trusted Christ as your Savior, may you help us to confess our sin openly, but also to be reminded that in Jesus, our sins have been forgiven. You have dealt with those at the cross. And may that give us freedom and liberty to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.